This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to This is A Voice, Series 2, Episode 10, Songs, Lyrics and Life. And we have a very special guest here. But before we introduce her, I'm just going to say a couple of things and then we're going to hear her sing. Vocalist and innovator, the archetype of a modern singer who can style hop at will and produce thoroughly musical and textually convincing versions of, um, anything. And that was London Jazz News. Isn't that fabulous? And before we meet her, I'm going to play just the beginning of one of her tracks from the new album. Georgia Mancho. Hello, Georgia. Hi, Georgia. So nice to see you. I know you're uh, back in Italy because you're Anglo-Italian. Georgia, Mm. we have so much to ask you. There's all sorts of things we want to find out about. First of all, the new album, which Mm. is glorious. Can I just say something about that little clip that you played? Because we were listening to it earlier and I said to Jeremy, oh, that's wonderful. Well, you know, we're ending on the 5th there. What a lovely ending to, you know, segue into introducing Georgia. And you said, well, it's not just any fifth, because what's underneath it is... A, um, what did I say it was? I think it was a dominant 13th. Something like that. It was yeah. a 13th. Ooh, I should uh, go and check. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, um, you know, because you and I have worked together on, on the songs that um, you've put together with Alan. That 13th chord features a lot. So, Alan, if you're listening... I love the 13th chord, but not to play it. <laughs> yes, I think I remember how, you know, put you through the, the ringer there of, oh, could, could you just, could we just work on this song? And uh, you, I, you'd be looking at the harmony and <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but that's also part of the journey. And, you know, when we maybe talk a bit more in depth about the, the process that you go through as um, a lyricist with a writer like Alan, which is how um, how that how the harmonies work and how they underpin what's going on emotionally in the songs. And mm. if they feel like, I said to Jeremy, th- these songs feel like the leader of jazz. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, you leader as in German leader. Yes, and yes. I think I recall Alan saying that he was a big fan of Schubert and that melody was incredibly important to him and that melody spoke to him in in ways that words didn't. And personally, I think that's one of the really special things about the songs, plus the extraordinary poetic lyrics that you write. I Before we go into mm. how you go about finding the lyrics, because you wrote the lyrics to the song and wrote the music, mm. um, I wanted just in case people haven't picked this up, you two know each other. And I just want to find out how you met Go. I'm trying to remember when it was, but I'm not entirely sure because I think recently every time has morphed, doesn't it? But to recap, um, in 2015, I 
I must have been run down because I got sort of sick. I got a cough that would not, I couldn't shift this cough. And this is sort of ironic with COVID, but obviously way before. And on and off, I had the cough for nine months. And um, eventually I realized it, it was affecting my voice. I mean, literally from one day to the next, I couldn't suddenly pitch certain things. And the GP, unfortunately, was totally unhelpful and suggested I might have reflux and any number of other things that weren't, just didn't add up, to be honest, with the with the, with the issues. And eventually I got um, referred to ENT and um, they diagnosed a cyst mm. and said it was quite rare. There's about 10% of people who, from a persistent cough, can develop a cyst. Wow. So, you know. I suppose like an ulcer, you know, like something literally that you've just, you're, you're constantly aggravating in the same spot. Um, and so he said, because already affecting your, your singing, not really my singing voice, we just, we would have normally advised to do speech therapy, but because you're already beyond that, we would just have to cut it out, which I think is probably the freakiest thing for any singer to hear mm. and I wasn't at all prepared as in I didn't know anyone who'd had a similar procedure um, and you have all those worries of did I do something wrong and you know all, everything that goes with it it was kind of reassuring to know it was something it was bad luck really but it's still the outcome is the same that you you end up having to have surgery and being stuck not singing for a while um, after the surgery, I had some um, restorative voice care with an, an amazing lady called Louisa Langston um, and quite intensive work, actually. And then she um, she left the UK. She went back home and um, I was a bit sort of distraught because I didn't feel like we'd quite got to the end of our work, even though I had been sort of singing, gigging again. And she suggested Gillianne, but I don't think... You knew each other personally, if I'm correct. She just now that's, knew your reputation. Have I got that right? Or That's interesting because actually we did, and I think she <laughs> probably would remember. Louisa, I worked with when she was at college as a singer. Ah, and yes. she was referred to me because she needed a little bit of help. And that's <laughs> how I met her. And I've often wondered if that was the reason why she got interested in voice therapy and went off to be a speech and language therapist and specialising in working with singers. Because that was the Lewisham Voice Clinic, wasn't it, I think? Yes, it mm. was, yes. And they had a monthly professional um, clinic for, mm. for vocalists or professional voice users. Mm. So, they, you know, you went in with that level of understanding, unlike, you know, with all respect, but the, your GP who who couldn't really distinguish between your speaking voice and using it to sing. And that's the problem. And even to be honest, even the surgeon didn't quite understand the distinction and, and told me to just start singing again after two weeks after the op. And considering I had to stay silent for 10 days, complete silence, that was never going to be an easy mm. transition. I think and she what's... really got it. She, she understood. And she was very patient mm. and, you know, very detailed I think what's tricky for singers when you've had a cyst and it's on a particular part of the vocal fold, obviously it's only on one vocal fold, not both, but it interferes with the vibration. And then because of the kind of the length and tensioning of the vocal folds, what then happens is that there'll be an area in your range, very typically, where it feels stiff. You know, everything is, is stiffened up because it's like after any operation, then you have to shake it free. And what I remember when we first started working together was that there was this dodgy area that <laughs> you, you were kind of already navigating around, you know, you were managing around it by kind of backing off, which, by the way, was a very wise strategy. But you really wanted to be more on top of it. And that's what the initial work was about, wasn't it? Kind of shaking that yeah. free, getting your confidence back in that area. Yes, and being sure you were doing it safely, I think. Mm -hmm. I, actually, I didn't explain fully really what happened is time he came to do the surgery, the cyst had gone, but there was a lot of scar tissue. And I think that was more complicated a recovery than if it had just been the cyst. Mm -hmm. that, so this inflexibility was really, it felt enormous to me, but then I suppose you, you're so 
hyper aware, aren't you, of every change in your voice. And it's so odd to go and work with someone who's never heard you before and say, have to explain, I can normally do this, this and this, but now I can't, you know, I can't. And yes, there's a, a lot of fear, I think, that comes from damaging further or, you know, just getting getting back to where you were, like you well, said, the also, confidence. There's a sense of loss as well. Because yeah. um, mm -hmm. if you were able to do something and you're able to do it to a very high level, then not being able to do it, there's a real fear that you'll never be able to do it again and that life will just be so much more narrow. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very easy for singers to say, but it doesn't feel like it used to. Mm. Mm. And that in itself can be a loss. And I'm in sort of my practice when I'm working with, when I worked with you and, and with other singers to habilitate them kind of back ready for work. Um, I'd kind of want to guide people towards, well, no, it might not feel the same, but actually now we've got is a, is a new you. We're building a new set of sensations and eventually you will be able to rely on them. And I know from having listened to historical recordings of yours, you weren't doing anything to cause that cyst. That's very nice to know. <laughs> Thank you. Not I'm from what I'm, my ears could tell me. Yes. And I never, I never was, I was lucky. I think I never had, I never had, you know, laryngitis, nothing. Not, you know, I used to be able to work a lot to two, sometimes three gigs a day and never get vocally tired. In fact, sometimes get better, get stronger. So and I wasn't cavalier about my voice, but I wasn't um, super careful either. And this definitely taught me, I think the phrase that has stuck most is actually the show must go on is, is one of the most damaging things um, that you can sort of instill in, in any performer actually, because no, sometimes, and not just for vocal reasons, for personal reasons, and we may well talk about them later, but mm. there are times when you have to recognize you need to stop. You know, mm. and I think ironically this year, everybody's had to do that anyway. Mm. <laughs> and you think, well, for starters, the world doesn't end, you know, it changes, you have to adapt, but also you have to recognize, don't you, when, when you personally are maybe running on empty and you know, so maybe if I had had that cough after a month, maybe I would have thought I shouldn't be doing this gig. I should have more rest in between. I should not talk, you know, whereas I just carried on a normal life. So maybe in that sense, it, you know, it, it prolonged, it prolonged it, prolonged being ill that they then caused a problem. It's just you, you just carry on with that mentality of you must always do the gig. I, I really appreciate you sharing this, actually, mm. because as we know, there are loads of singers out there who have voice problems. I had a voice problem myself when I was a young singer, and people can feel guilt, they can feel shame, they feel fear that they're going to lose their work, that their, you know, their reputation is going to be ruined, et cetera, et cetera, plus all the grief for something mm. that you felt you could rely on before because your voice is part of you and there's that sense of, you know, suddenly you can't you can't rely on it anymore. And and that's very challenging, I think, for singers. Mm. Yes. And I think, sorry, you're right about the sharing. Um I did speak to somebody after the fact that she'd had a different voice issue and maybe at the time I was too focused on needing to speak to someone who'd had exactly the same to, to understand the recovery because it turned out to be so much longer than they had sort of indicated. And I, I didn't talk about it publicly. I kind of felt all of those things that you've, you've mentioned. And also I think there was just also maybe that sense of you're so focused on getting back, getting back, that you're moving forward and you don't really want to spend any longer than necessary and it was probably when when I did your course your 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 one day or half day on my singer my singer has a problem mm. and learning about all the other different types of voice issues that you can have obviously ones that you might cause yourself or that happen with bad luck like mine but in the end the psychology is probably similar mm. in that you said as you say there's a grief there and a sense of what next and how you adapt and how you 
take the good stuff from it and there certainly has been good stuff mm. from it <laughs> um but yeah i think it is important to talk about i mean really important and you think why is there this strange stigma where if you're an athlete you wouldn't think twice about mm-hmm. saying saying it's it's a really oddity and, and that's what that was the only thing i could relate with that show must go on mentality because you don't say that to a footballer mm. I think, I mean, speaking from, you know, my side of the pedagogical community, I think there's also um, armchair medics saying, ah, well, you know, if they'd worked with me, this would never have happened. Mm. And um, I think that we teachers are can be guilty of voice shaming. Mm. Uh, you're going to have a voice problem if you carry on singing like mm. that. You know, or, or people who maybe go for one session with a new teacher and the teacher says, ah, you've got a voice problem, you know. Well, I'm sorry, but if you haven't looked inside, you don't really know. Um, so I think all of that is in our culture. And although you've kind of developed more in a, in a jazz culture where I think maybe there may be more freedom than there is even in musical theatre and classical, in terms of voice use, I think that kind of, it sort of bleeds across in, into the training industry and uh, it, it needs fixing, really. Mm, that's really interesting. <laughs> I want to come to um, the fact that you went through the, the habilitation process. And I, first of all, want to say to both of you, congratulations, because what a great job you've both done. Um <laughs> I mean, your voice now is so flexible mm. and also so precise, mm. which I think is amazing. And we're, we're going to hear another track from your album which later on, which I think is lovely. Um, I want to go to become, it's almost like getting back into performance again and also mm. the writing that you do. How did what you went through affect your writing or did it? Mm, good question. Um, it's funny because it must have done because it, it, in fact, I mean, what happened is just, I got notification that I was having of the, the date for the op. I think, uh, the day before I was due to record an album, not, not this one, obviously, but, but our previous collaboration, which was songbook we recorded in 2015. So it all happened in the same year. It was such a, strange psychology so I had I'd done a lot of writing before and maybe at that time it was a good focus but I don't actually remember I think it's a bit of a blur to be honest and it might be because I really did try and just move forward once (laughs) once it was done but that said it was at least 18 months two years before Mm -hmm. I felt okay this is you know I mean not being married to that (laughs) can I say blooming (laughs) The, the steamer, you know, that, oh, not this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, know, I must go home and steam or, you know, mm. or the social impact as well was enormous. It, you know, it's so funny how it relates to COVID because, um, you know, knowing how, knowing that I had to go home or not talk in a break on a gig um, because that was more tiring than singing mm. and the rooms I was working in often, you know, really weren't conducive if they weren't concert settings it was just a background gig so i think it probably fed into writing in the in the sense that writing felt so untainted from all of that stress um but maybe it took a while to to process that but oh, writing's nice. always just felt less emotion ironically less emotionally uh, erratic it's my writing is emotional and very connected to to you know to things that happen in my other people's lives and and I really want to get into the 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 nub of all of all of the messy stuff of life I don't want to write in a sort of generic way but it I'm able to sort of somehow be less uh, uh clinging on for you know oh gosh if that gig wasn't good and you you know you start analyzing and comparing yourself and it can be so destructive I think writing is is more straightforward in that sense so probably i i i was able to use it as a release in that sense that's lovely that that is very interesting and your lyrics i mean particularly for this album have been described as heartfelt i don't mm. know we've got oh lovely what's the one from um 
We got that lovely quote from Women in Jazz. Yeah, the two artists work in such perfect symmetry, our ears and minds and hearts are theirs. They have struck such beauty and perfection. That's an amazing quote. It is. That was such an amazing review. Yes. Erminia Yardley, great writer and such a, she just felt really so emotionally connected to the album. I think particularly at the time that it came out, which was, we were, you know, we'd been a year into, into lockdown. And I think she just felt it, it sort of helped her release something and, and understood a lot of the themes and could relate to, to a lot of the themes. Before we go to your second song, the, which is actually the title song of the album, I want to ask you, because you're working in the same field, but in three different areas. So you've got performer, you've got recording artist, and you've got lyricist. And performance and, you know, um, production, creator, I guess. production. Yeah. yes, yeah. you know, you're yeah. a curator of, of a festival, True. you know, True. with the, the Rejoice. That uh, you, uh, re- you did. Revoice and Revoice. Hang. Rejoice. Revoice. Revoice, Revoice is good. Yeah. I think I thought Rejoice actually yeah. at the time when <laughs> you made the thing. <laughs> and in a way, what's interesting is that you're not just a singer. And, and how did you move from being a singer into a lyricist and, and all of that? Tell well, us bef- how that. Before we go there, before the, I have a very specific question for you. I want you to imagine in your mind um, at the end of a performance – the end of a festival, the end of a recording gig, and f- producing the final version of the lyrics, do they all feel the same? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, it doesn't all feel exactly the same. No, I think the end of anything live, there's that mix of exhaustion, but really happy exhaustion, you know, like when you've done a really good bout of exercise and you're enjoying that moment and you're a little bit hyper still and you're also thinking oh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to having a cup of tea and, and a cuddle with my cat that definitely have that association with coming record from a gig you know and the after gig and blah 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 ending a recording always feels a little anticlimactic because you're really tired in a different way but I don't know. It's a bit deader, isn't it? You don't have that. You don't have the other people around. You know, at the end of a gig is is the nicest thing because then you can connect to the audience. And you know, you I love to do that chat, sell the albums, whatever. But just to talk and get feedback because you know, you're, that's the point, isn't it? You're doing it to connect to to other people. Mm. And where, whereas I think with the recording, you're all just. <laughs> Thank goodness that's done. <laughs> and you're worrying, have I got it? You know, did that piano squeak in the right wrong place? And da da da. Finishing a lyric? Uh, yes, I think, I suppose it's um, because I'm writing with uh, other people, you know, collaborating. There's always that sense that I'll send something off, say to Alan, and, and not always be sure it's finished because, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for him to say yes, no, or can you change that line, that word? So you kind of don't want to get too uh, hung up on that's it, that's the minute <laughs> because sometimes it, it isn't. And sometimes we've both gone back a while later to change something here or there. Mm. Not not often, but we have. So there is sometimes that sense of, oh, you know, it could still be a work in progress slightly. Mm. And maybe the same goes for recording because you know you've got then all the post-production to come all the artwork everything that makes it into a product whereas a gig is the best to me because that's it it's done mm. <laughs> and I love that and then you move on and the next night or the next year whatever has its own flavor and it doesn't have to keep on reliving reliving it's it's sort of already happened it's really interesting. It's the idea it's like that writing a book like in, in a, a collaborative book, yeah. way yeah. because it's a collaborative thing. Yeah. It takes time. It has to gestate. You have an idea. Yeah. You're working with someone maybe with a, a slightly different energy and a different take. Mm. Mm. And it's also when you think about a performance, um, a performance, everything leads up to the performance and it's a single mm. event mm. and you get that launch up to it. You get the event itself and you get the come down. Um, the the sort of release of energy at the end. When you think about a book or a lyric or something that is in development like that, it's a much, usually, not always, it's a much longer, slower route and you don't actually get to them. You don't ever really get to that peak point. 
Yes. I mean, that's the closest so that you get is the release of it. Mm. Yes. Like yes. the release of the album or the release of the book. But it's, it's a, in a way, it's a much slower route. Definitely. And even because when I work with Alan, we're in different time zones because mm. he's in New York, I'm in London. Mm. And that has an impact because sometimes I'll send him something while I'm going to bed. Mm. And sometimes I'll be disciplined and switch my phone off <laughs> so that I don't see, you know, yeah. what the answer. Does he hate it? <laughs> or because I think that's good. Send it, go to sleep, forget about it. You know, yeah. sometimes I send, you know, and if I send it a different time of the day, I am, there is that direct, you know, contact because he's usually very quick. He doesn't wait for days to, you know, make a decision. It's, it's instant. So, you know, that can, that can impact it. Sometimes you need to have that distance. Yes, but indeed. I, 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 I Speaking have to as say, a co-author. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what, do yeah. you email each other late at night? <laughs> we, do, we do, actually. We do email we do. each other. Yes. Really? Yeah. That's so funny. It's quite good to have it written down as well to clear your be sure of your thoughts. Yes. I, mean, I want to go now to where Gillian was about to go, which is um, lyric writing in general. How, what, well, why, where, when? Yeah, why did you start writing lyrics? Because, I, I mean, it sounds like yours isn't a typical journey as, as a, a jazz vocalist. I think mine probably hasn't been a typical journey in, any, in anything to do with music, certainly. Um, and writing, I think, happened almost the same way that um, singing happened, kind of by chance, by, you know, suggestion, by encouragement from people I trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first lyric I wrote was when I was doing um, a th- three-month residency in Dubai in 2001. So this is 20 years ago. Um, and uh, it was with a, a fantastic jazz trio, or G- we were a trio, and we were doing, I think, seven gigs a week. <laughs> we had a day off, but two gigs on the last day. Mm. And um, the pianist who I was with, a fantastic pianist and writer called Tim Lapthorne, had written this beautiful, um, very simple piece, although it was in 5-4. So it was simple, but not that simple when he came to write. And he kept playing it. And I said, oh, it's so lovely. I, you know, and I love it. And he said, oh, well, why don't you write some lyrics to it? And it was almost like someone had, because they'd suggested it, they give you the permission to, to do it. I really had never thought of myself as someone who would end up writing. And, and I think it's just because I wasn't in any way dissatisfied with singing other people's songs or other people's words. It, it didn't occur to me, you know. Mm. So I, I spent a long time on that song because, because, like I said, it was in 5-4, so it wasn't as obvious and as simple as I first thought. But it, it was very simple in in that he needed to have a very strong lyric that didn't impose too much on the melody but but was also kind of economical enough to you know to stand up in with few words and then very hard to write they are and I had no idea because I hadn't written (laughs) so it's only now that I I can see that those songs take me much longer than, you know, and with Alan, we've written from the sort of slower ones that you, from our last album to, you know, much more complex sambas or bebops that are quite wordy and twisty that I would have thought would have been harder for me. But actually, in the end, somehow you get a flow from them that mm. you're not, you don't, you've got a bit more time and, you know, space to to have multiple ideas, whereas, as you say, when it's really simple, it's so hard mm. because you, you, you know, you need to cut all the flack. Mm-hmm. So nothing um, <laughs> extraneous. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's how it started, and mm. then we wrote a few more together. We recorded some in 2010 on an album I did called Silhouette. I wrote um, one which was the title track, which was a lyric to an ex- another existing. Uh, instrumental by um, another wonderful pianist and composer, Kate Williams. Mm -hmm. And um, then we ended up working together properly and writing together just a couple of years ago and did an album called Finding Home. And in the meantime, I'd just been writing the odd lyric here and there to basically instrumental jazz tunes that I liked. And often those composers weren't around anymore to tell me if it was really not what they were thinking, but just to sort of get some practice. Georgia, and then, you, Georgia you've skipped over something very, very nicely, but I am going to come back to it. Finding home. 
Yes. 2020 UK Parliamentary Jazz Awards uh-huh. for the best album. Oh, yes. we did. I'm yes. still waiting for my uh, slice of pizza. and <laughs> It was the most un, uh, unglamorous uh, award ceremony because I don't think everyone was fully Zoomed up by then. So there was nothing. We didn't even have a Zoom awards, nothing. It was just a sort of pre-recorded announcement and it felt a little bit of an anticlimax. Oh. <laughs> I think they're trying to this year but nevertheless that was incredible actually yes we won best album um because it was an album that really meant a lot to us both me and Kate we'd we'd put a lot of time and effort and um tried to push ourselves out of our comfort zone quite a lot I think writing wise and performance wise and it's a big project there's it's a string quartet and a and a jazz trio and then her father who's the esteemed uh, guitarist classical guitarist john williams he was the guest as well so it was quite a production nice. <laughs> yeah um i want to go if you don't mind uh, i want to play another track well or part of one, yes and let's then talk about that let's do that because now i'd really love georgia to talk about some of the themes in quiet is the star so if we listen to some of the title track yep Um, And this is the second half of the title track, Quiet is the Star. As I close my eyes, I see the sky. I watch the birds go by. such great breath control i think i remember us talking about slow heartbeat and breathing with that slow heartbeat to set the atmosphere um i have a comment about this you know this for me because i'm going to nerd now i'm going to do voice nerd stuff um your use of diphthongs in this song is amazing oh thank you you do slow transitions And I am so pleased to hear somebody do almost a whole song of slow transitions. It's so poised when you do these slow transitions. And uh, you have so many diphthong words in here on the long notes. Mm. Night, sky, close, eyes, close, bind, light, tonight. There's so (laughs) many. I'm glad I didn't think of this before because I would have got completely hung up. But it's so nice because I talk about, um, in the coaching that we do, I talk about uh, how you deal with diphthongs, fast mm. transitions, late mm. transitions. Mm. Um, and I talk about slow transitions and very few people do them. And it's mm. so nice for me now because I can use this track as a lovely example of somebody doing really good <laughs> slow transitions. So thank you. Permission, please. <laughs> so oh, I love it. Georgia, whose birds were they, by the way? Is it, are they Welsh birds or Italian? I can hear some coming through at the end on my... Headphones, it's charming all the way through that. Lovely. That yeah, we have the door open. Birds <laughs> sing, birds sing when they hear singers. They do. Wow. Mm-hmm. Even the chickens not- come to the door and listen when mm. we have singers. <laughs> so, Saying I can better than that. Listen to my diphthongs. Tell us, tell us a bit about the themes because I think you've been very much sort of, you know, praised. It feels that. 
Quiet is the Star has something really important to tell us in, in this particular time, even though I know some of the songs were written quite a while ago. Tell us about the themes and, and what they mean to you. I think the summary would be that line right at the end, um, the ties that bind, you know, and which which are the ties that are important, which are the ties that we have to accept, we need to let go of, whether by force or by choice. And yes, the whole album was uh, written and recorded in 20, late 2019. So before any of us knew what was coming, mm-hmm. and which was obviously lucky for us because it, it was done. Um, but it is amazing how it suddenly became so <laughs> even more pertinent. Mm. Um, and, and on a personal note, uh, I had, um, lost my mum at the beginning of that year mm. and that's my second parent. So, you know, I was suddenly in a, a different sort of grieving situation than I had been when my dad had died six years before mm. because it suddenly, well, it was just different in every way, actually, you know. Um, but trying to make that sense, and I've spoken to a few people who, you know, uh, who call them, well, adult orphans, you know, mm. and how you start thinking more in a way about them and what maybe they were going through at your age or, you know, more of them as about them as rounded people than just your parents and mm. your connection to them. Um, so, yeah, I think also that's trying to make sense of, these situations that we're thrust into that probably not many of us are, are that prepared for, or even when we've had the experiences, we're still not prepared because every bereavement is different and every kind of loss is different. And you can be surprised at how, how they, you know, how they take you or how long it takes to get to a, a similar situation or, you know, how, how, how short, how quickly you get back to the same point. So I think it's part of that thing of writing something truthful and writing something um, meaningful, personally meaningful, but that's also universal. Mm. And Alan is very good at, um, right from the beginning, actually, he was always very good at suggesting that there be this balancing point so that you're not writing something that's so wholly personal that no one else could kind of, it's a bit too secret almost that someone can't quite delve into that level of your experience there should be a sense that you know and especially now we're we're thinking more about other people singing the songs Mm. you do want to someone else to be able to put their interpretation on it and certainly you do as a listener so why not wouldn't why wouldn't you want to do the same for somebody else singing your words you know you you need to be able to hear them in someone else's voice which is you know not going to be the same as in your voice so I, i think Primarily the themes are, you know, about loss and what you what you can gain from the loss, from any kind of loss. Um, and That's fascinating, Georgia, because what you're talking about is, is your own personal emotions, feelings, uh, experiences, but then running it through something that says we are all a community. Mm. You know, there are mm. many people out there who feel like I do or mm. who have had a similar experience that I've had. It's sharing in, in humanity. It is. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I found, particularly when I was first bereaved, when my dad died in 2013, it was very, very quick. Um, it was traumatic on lots of different levels, partly because he died abroad, uh, you know, a long way away from where I was, from from home for me. So there were a lot of logistical difficulties. Everything kind of made it difficult without even just the experience of it being my, not my first experience at bereavement, but first very serious experience. And I I just felt at a loss, (laughs) pardon the pun, as in there didn't seem to be any kind of barometer of how you're supposed to feel or people would say these platitudes to you which were utterly meaningless and not that helpful (laughs) or worse sometimes people were so unbelievably insensitive you were sort of left shocked you almost at a point in time I almost felt like I was going a bit crazy that you know I shouldn't be keeping on having these feelings because it wasn't it's like it wasn't talked about. I remember just feeling very isolated by it. 
And, you know, as time's gone on, and I've understood how normal all of that is, if ever I know someone has been bereaved, and I understand, by the way, that if you haven't been through that experience, it is hard to relate. And you don't always know what to say. And that's fine. But then just say, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Are you okay? Anything that's mm, mm. You know, not insensitive or, or a brush off. So I would always now try and say, you know, something to someone, you know, you're not alone and, you know, to make them feel like they can talk to other people about it. But as a society, I think we're terrible at it. Really terrible. I think we're hopeless at talking about death. And I I know that, um, in fact, my dad passed away at once we, you know, when we were working together. Yeah. And I can remember working on some of your songs and, and, you know, both of us filling up. And and I will say from a personal point of view, how nice it was to work with someone who is uh, a writer and a singer who clearly had gone through the process of understanding what that is like. Um, And, uh, yes, I think it is very hard unless you've had that experience. And because we don't talk about it and we don't share it, Yes. Then um, we have no we have no barometer, and I suppose what I like about these songs is that you're not afraid to to go there and choose those themes, and I'm sure that they they will have helped a number of people. Yes, I think that that it was a similar sense of isolation that I'd had after the voice op, you know. The irony that you don't, you literally can't talk to anyone about it or you don't feel that you should because there isn't that sort of, um, or I hadn't found that sense of community, you know, I didn't kind of know where to look for it. Um, And also just sometimes you, it's more tiring trying to explain to someone how you feel. You just go inside yourself and kind of keep it inside and definitely writing has felt cathartic. It's probably why I didn't quite relate it to, you know, when you asked me about did I find writing useful at the time of the voice op? I don't think I made that link then, but I know I definitely made it later on mm. in thinking about, you know, when my dad died and when my mum died, just dealing somehow with this ugliness because there's nothing, you know, when in any way it happens, it's it's pretty seismic and it's and it's pretty devastating mm. to to come to terms with, you know, and. You st- the loss is the loss, whether they're, you know, 93, you know, or <laughs> whether you expect whatever. It, yes. Expect it. Yeah, totally. And, um, and, and eventually is something everyone will have to deal with. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just think considering that we should all be much more versed in it. <laughs> and if there is any way that you can help reach out to someone or preempt that you know by the way just think about this at some point and this is going to happen and have some tools you just feel like there's social skill it should be part of our skill set that we have some way of dealing with it maybe it's partly because I have no religion so I didn't have that either as a as a sort of comfort blanket where you can say oh they're in that hole you're in a better place thing if you don't believe you don't have that either (laughs) so you are a bit left with okay what now I think it's interesting because mm. there are, I think that people are not used to the idea of thinking of bereavement, mm. even though literally everyone on the planet As will either go through it or die at some mm. point. Mm. Yeah. And that means that they sort of don't know where they stand and they don't have any tools to work with. And they don't, well, I, and I certainly didn't understand the, the impact it has, not just psychologically, but physically on you, the toll it takes, you know, that, that sense of exhaustion and confusion. I remember that, the, the, just not being sharp, not being alert about things, having a sort of sense of slowing down, which is like walking through, you know, mud or something. Yeah, because the brain is processing the brain is processing the grief, and so you get into this kind of fog. Mm. Um, and I think that's quite typical. I remember being very irascible after my dad died. I mean, more than usual. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering, Georgia, I mean, obviously, you know, your mum was a special person because she was your mum, but there were also certain aspects of your mum that I think have influenced you and the way you think about life and um, social justice and social conscience. 
And um, I know that you've said to me that Tell the River has has a bit of that theme embedded in it. I wondered if you'd like to talk about that. Yes, um, you are spot on, though. I mean, if I, if I got my sense of social justice from anywhere, it would. It certainly is from my mum because I remember even as a, a kid going on marches and things with her. And you know, my dad used to have an office in Stockwell, and we she she showed us the the Brixton riots to sort of you know highlight what was happening and why it was happening I'll never forget because a policeman came up to her and told her off you know oh you think this is a sensible thing to do to to show your children you know really patronizing and probably wouldn't have said it to a man but anyway that was a long time ago I guess um but I think yes well she didn't do it in a heavy-handed way either but it was just there and um so I guess I, I grew up with that sense of you know Thing, looking, not being uh, blind to injustice and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to have a sort of caring attitude and um, tell the river was directly inspired by a really a horrible story that just, it really got to me. And there have been sadly too many before and too many since, but specifically it was the story of um, a young African-American woman called Sandra Bland, who was, arrested supposedly on a a traffic offence in the States. And because it was all captured on the body cam, you could see the arrest, you could see how it escalated to something incredibly vicious very fast. And then she was taken into police custody. And I think two or three days later, um, she it was ruled that she had committed suicide in the cell. And as far as I know, there still hasn't been any, uh, you know, payback for her family as to what really happened it's, it was just another one of these awful stories that we hear a whitewash before you know culminating obviously in George Floyd Floyd and uh, that sense of justice at last but mm. it was just that thing of imagining well who who is that person who was that woman who what might she have become what what have you taken away not just from her but her her you know her future family her whole community and uh you know what what is that what does it mean what you know when that's somebody's life is is cut short in such a way and and more so that there you know that there's not going to be any retribution for it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and it certainly wasn't the first time and certainly sadly won't probably be the last um and i also had that sort of you know what can can you do anything at all about these uh, situations and I've tried um, done a lot of charity work for particularly for child refugees in the last five years and you feel like okay yes sometimes there are things you can do practically hands feet on the ground but it is hard you get you to get disheartened because mm-hmm. you know really to affect proper change there has to be institutional change and it has to come from a much bigger source than you know a few people rallying or going on marches and you kind of need to do everything all at once there's something, Jojo, which is is very interesting about music as a as a whole, which is music has the ability to do that. It has the ability to cut through boundaries as a and, vehicle and to make mm. people think. Mm. And I want to talk about Tell the River because the lyrics themselves are amazingly strong. Mm. And you can listen to the track on so many different levels. And I think that's what I'm really hearing in the album is that you can listen to all of these tracks on different levels. So you can enjoy the music, you can enjoy your singing and Alan's playing, which is extremely good. Mm. And then you can look at the lyrics and listen to them and take them in. And then you can hear the backstory behind the lyrics and that gives it a whole new depth. Yeah, yeah. Which is really fascinating. So there are many levels that you can listen to this this music. I'm just thinking about these lines now that I was wondering about, which is tell the ones that follow on, they're worthy. Yeah. Till the time they overcome, our spirits must believe. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I knew obviously at the time you don't you don't preface these things with. By the way, this is. I mean, we have in the album. I've I've mm. wanted to write, you know, and in our book where we've published all our songs. Now we've written, you know, what we felt each song is about, and then you know somebody might never read that, and certainly might interpret it in another way, and that's as you say is really important and valid as well, but. Sometimes I think you really need to be specific as well. So if you if you are going to perform, if I'm going to perform it, I want to preface it and say this is what it's about because I want to be sure I'm talking directly about the the, the issue and not 
and not sort of brushing over it. Um, and that really happened with Finding Home, where we wrote a specific trilogy about, you know, my experiences, either firsthand or, or sort of learned experience working with child refugees. And we wanted to say, this is about this specifically. Let's not skirt around it and then we can turn it into something positive we can tell you about a charity that will support this issue if you're interested you can support it too and mm. i've been thinking a lot about this in the last couple of weeks with this new uh backlash about the england football team mm. and taking the knee and I, and i actually feel that we should be doing more as a music community as a performing arts community if footballers can do that and i think they've been phenomenal actually over covid and and certainly over black lives matter i thought well why are we not doing that before a concert and i literally thought it last night but you know why don't we start a concert when we can be going back to doing them now taking a knee and and saying this is a statement we want to make because we're we're making it in solidarity and it's an important thing to us and mm. not be afraid to immediately put out a political statement as a statement of intent for us. And yeah, and if people don't like it and they don't want to come to a concert where things like that are mentioned, then then they can leave. But, you know, <laughs> the, the, the point of art is actually to change society as well as to share feelings and evoke feelings and responses in other people. You know, um, I think as they were saying in the recent West End thing, um, Gosh, I've forgotten. It's, the show must go on. The show must go on. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, you know, it's not a passion. It's a profession. Mm. And as such, we are influencers in society. Mm. So I, I completely agree with you, actually. I want to ask you, Georgia, if you've got any advice for people who are looking to be on a similar track to you. Mm, yes, that's a good place to go. I think probably the thing I've found most valuable is is trying to learn as many aspects of the industry as possible um, because you get such a such a broader idea of of what is going on and certainly when I did revoice that's that happened it was like a you know accelerated course in that and you know you learn how much you leave to other people to to organize and sort out and how much you can do yourself. You might not like it. You might rail against it, but you might actually find you enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But at least you know that then later when you work with somebody else in that situation, you can, you can direct them or you can, you know, argue if you don't think that they're doing something properly or if, you know, and I worry a little now with the way, you know, we're coming back into work and it's been a long time and, you know, we've heard already quite a few horror stories about West End theatre and musicians and and cast members being mm -hmm. effectively dumped or mm. expected to hold on to their jobs but, but not being paid in the meantime. All that and orchestras being reduced. And I think that will there's an issue with that in our field as well, where there's live streaming as part of a, a gig now. And are you being, you know, recompensed for it properly? And, you know, all of that. So the more you know about these areas the more you you're sort of informed and you're not just thinking as this block of I'm a musician and I just don't think we can afford to do that anymore because we're expected to know so much about you know social media and you know production of an album that it's good to to empower yourself with it and I think it makes you able to to collaborate better as well because you recognize mm -hmm what's what you need from somebody else and you know what you really don't do well yourself and you're not just waiting around for the gigs that yeah. I mean that's the thing you can wait around forever for those gigs <laughs> to come back yeah um, and they're not going to and you're very much proactive there's an element of taking control of your life mm. in all yeah. of that because the more you know even if you just know certain aspects of behind the scenes in various areas there's an air, an aspect of taking control of your life because you go i understand how that works i'm not interested in doing it i get somebody else to do it but yeah, at least yeah. i know what i'm supposed to ask them yes. and also you discover yourself what your own talents and, and interests are and you go i am interested in doing this what do i need to do to make this happen mm. and that's also what i see throughout your career is you've gone what do I need to do to make this happen mm. yes and uh, like you said you know when you find out that you actually do really like something that you would never have maybe tried 
I mean, yeah. I could say that about writing. I didn't have, I never had that ambition. I really didn't. And people would always say, oh, do you write your own songs? Especially mm-hmm. when they're outside of the, the jazz genre where it's not maybe so usual to write your own material. But in other genres, it's much more common. Uh, you know, if I hadn't had that start because someone had sort of helped me along or suggested it, then, you know, that whole side of my career would never potentially never have happened. And mm-hmm. same with, you know, Revoice. I wouldn't really want to do it again, not for a while, <laughs> because it was very all-consuming. But I feel really, you know, proud that I did do it for five years. Mm. And, you know, and that I, I understood, you know, that whole side of production and, you know, and, I, you know, I feel like that helps you sort of look for excellence in, in other shows that you do and, and to have a broader vision and it makes it more interesting for the audience and more involved for the or involving them you know and that's sometimes I think in jazz we we forget the audience a little bit we take it for granted that they're at a certain level of you know understanding the context of the music that that's enough (laughs) whereas Um, I think that's a very good point actually I just want to um, let people know how they can find out about you yes please Um, so first of all the album is called quiet is the star thank you um you've got instagram handles at georgia mancho and you can click on the link tree in the bio to, to get the album mm. yes. uh, facebook georgia mancho music twitter georgia mancho uh youtube georgia mancho and i have the link as well and you're on bandcamp as well georgiamancho.bandcamp.com Yes, and Bandcamp is the best for us. Well, to be honest, my own website is the best because then it's straight, no commission. But if not, Bandcamp have been amazing over lockdown doing Bandcamp Fridays where they waive their fees. They're properly musician-friendly compared to Spotify. That's all I'll say about them. Okay. Um, And your website's georgiamancher.com? Yes. Excellent. Um, We've come to the end of this, which has been really actually it's it's been interesting it's been enthralling it's been really fascinating and we are going to change our rule we always play out with the jingle but this time we're not Mm. going to this time we're going to play out with the whole track the whole title track quiet as the star so you need to sit down listeners (laughs) and breathe gently and chill and contemplate and listen to the music and listen to the diphthongs (laughs) Georgia, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Way to follow 
which ties to bind and in their flight in tomorrow's light so quiet is the star